Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome back to the UBS In The Now podcast channel as today we will continue on with our Decision 2022 series of conversations which have been delivering you insights and perspectives in the weeks leading up to and now following the U.S. midterm elections. Joining us today to provide some perspective on the developments and outcomes we know as of today, we are fortunate to have back with us with special thanks to our partners over at VanEck, Congressman John Fazzo. Some quick background before we get into our conversation. Congressman Fazzo served in the 115th Congress from 2017 through 2019, representing the 19th Congressional District in upstate New York. The district included all or part of 11 counties in the Mid-Hudson Valley and Catskills regions. The congressman served on the House Agriculture, Budget and Transportation and Infrastructure Committees. He was the GOP candidate for Governor of New York in 2006. Since leaving Congress, Congressman Fazzo has worked as a business consultant while maintaining a private law practice. He also publishes opinion article topics of the day on a regular basis. So, Congressman Fazzo, it's a pleasure to have you back with us here at UBS. Thank you very much for dedicating the time and looking forward to hearing your insights. Thank you, Dan. It's great to be with you and uh, uh, always happy to uh, participate with UBS and, and our good friends at Act. Thank you, Congressman. So to get started to hear your thoughts on how the chips fell, so to speak, I alluded to as of today, we still don't know all of the results. We still have some outstanding congressional races, a gubernatorial race out there. So still some results yet to materialize. Though of what we know, Congressman, what are your overall thoughts and reflections and anything amongst the outcomes that we know that has jumped out at you or surprised you? Well, yes, a couple of things. One, this was not a red wave. Uh, it was barely a red ripple. Uh, the Republicans uh, will gain enough seats, uh, barely, uh, to win control of the uh, House of Representatives. And the control of the U.S. Senate is still up for grabs. And that is going to depend on um, uh, three races in three different states. One, Nevada, where Adam Laxalt, the Republican candidate, is narrowly ahead of uh, Senator Cortez Masto, uh, the Democrat incumbent. And uh, that is probably going to be decided by late Friday or Saturday as um, late mail-in votes are counted. Um, the second race is Arizona, where Senator Mark Kelly is facing off against Republican Blake Masters. Uh, Kelly is up about 80,000 votes. There's still about 30% of the ballots remaining. It is suggested that many of those ballots lean Republican um, based on the areas that they are coming from. Uh, but I do not expect that uh, that will be enough for Masters to overtake the lead that Senator Kelly has. And so the last uh, race will be Georgia. And yes, friends, again, we have a runoff in Georgia. Thankfully, this runoff is going to be on December 6th, and you may remember two years ago that there was a runoff in Georgia on January 5th of uh, 2021, right after uh, the New Year, and that spoiled not just Thanksgiving, but uh, Christmas and New Year's for a lot of people in Georgia. Uh, but that race between Senator Raphael Warnock and uh, uh, Herschel Walker, the Republican candidate, uh, not, since neither candidate 
achieved 50% under Georgia law, they have to go to a, a runoff. There was a libertarian candidate in that race who got about 4% of the vote. That candidate won't appear on the ballot on uh, December 6th, and it will be Warnock and uh, uh, Herschel Walker uh, to decide uh, the race. Now, if if Republican Laxalt wins in, um, in Nevada, uh, that would mean that and, and Mark Kelly wins, uh, as I expect, in Arizona, then uh, the control of the U.S. Senate will be decided by the single race in, in Georgia. So that'll be an interesting phenomenon. Well, Congressman, it is amazing how history seems to be repeating itself this cycle with respect to the Georgia Senate runoff, as you pointed out, coming up on December 6th. You did mention a few moments ago how what was predicted or thought to have been the outcome, that being a red wave scenario, did not quite materialize as was expected. So I'm curious from your vantage point, what went right, what went wrong for both parties? I think the biggest problem for Republicans and why the uh, red wave as had been anticipated uh, by many pollsters and, and many political analysts on both sides, the reason it didn't materialize is uh, candidate selection. In the U.S. Senate, the Republicans nominated candidates um, who simply were out of touch with where many independent voters were. There were some very closely contested races, North Carolina, for instance, where my former colleague Ted Budd was elected by about four points, and Senator Ron Johnson was reelected to a third term by about a point and a half in Wisconsin. But Pennsylvania is a classic case. Uh, the Republicans, uh, with uh, and especially because former President Trump uh, interceded in the nominating process, he endorsed uh, uh, Dr. Oz in, a, in that primary uh, against David McCormick, and McCormick would have been a much stronger candidate. Virtually every analyst agrees in the general election, but Trump endorsed a weaker candidate, Oz, who even running against John Fetterman, who was, in my view, a very flawed candidate for a lot of reasons, uh, Fetterman won that race by four points uh, and, in fact, um, may have swung the control of the Pennsylvania House as well uh, to the Democrats. And the Republican candidate for governor there was, was a, a very far-right candidate, a state senator named Doug Mastriano, uh, he was crushed by uh, the AG uh, Shapiro in Pennsylvania. So in that instance, Republicans nominated the wrong candidates, both for governor and for the U.S. Senate. In uh, in Georgia, Herschel Walker uh, ran about six points, seven points behind uh, Governor Brian Kemp, um, who beat Stacey Abrams convincingly for governor again for a second term. Uh, other Republicans won up and down the ballot in the state of Georgia. Republicans won every statewide race, and I think there were five or six of them on the ballot in Georgia, and they won all of them with between 52 and 54 percent. Herschel Walker was at 48 percent. Um, Arizona, Blake Masters, uh, the, the candidate supported by Donald Trump and, and financier uh, Peter Thiel, um, he fell short as well, and while that race is still up in the air, it may not uh, uh, be decided for a few days. Uh, it's unlikely, I think, that he will overcome the gap with, with Mark Kelly. So in each of these instances, oh, New Hampshire is the last one. Uh, uh, the uh, Republicans nominated uh, a retired general, Don Boldick, who was considered too far to the right uh, for many 
you know, New Hampshire voters. New Hampshire is a purple state. It's not it's a state that can go back and forth. And uh, Governor Chris Sununu was winning overwhelmingly in New Hampshire. And uh, General Boldick, uh actually lost by a considerable margin in the race against Senator Hassan. So in each of those races, those four states, um, Pennsylvania, Georgia, New Hampshire, and Arizona, the Republican candidate selection uh, was flawed. You know, William F. Buckley, the, the late uh, conservative writer and columnist, used to say Republicans should nominate the most conservative candidate who can win the general election. Well, uh, in the year of Trump, we're particularly seeing Republican primary voters nominate candidates in the primary who cannot win the general election. And it's a lesson that has been learned repeatedly, but somehow a lot of people don't get the message. Uh, the House, it was, it was very similar. There, in, in each of the cases, uh, uh, a number of cases uh, I can point to where Republicans nominated a candidate uh, who uh, may have satisfied the Trump wing of the Republican Party, but who simply weren't going to be able to win. Uh, the Trump endorsement, let's be, let's be frank, is very, very good in a lot of the very red states. Very important. You saw Liz Cheney lost her primary by 30 points um, in in Alabama and Mississippi and Texas and a number of other states. That Trump endorsement is very helpful to those candidates. But if you look up and down the line in states and districts that are swing districts, that are more purple states, they're not ruby red, they're not uh, deep blue states, um, the candidate uh, with the Trump backing uh, in those swing districts and states, uh, generally didn't work, uh, didn't win. Uh, here in New York, Congressman Lee Zeldin, a good friend of mine, was the candidate. He was supported by President Trump, and unlike all, some of these other states, he made the governor's race in New York a very, very tight competitive race because rather than running on um, extraneous issues, he focused like a laser on crime and the economy in New York State and he came within five points of winning the governorship, which was uh, quite an achievement uh, for him. And he carried in behind him no, no fewer than 11, new, 11 Republican uh, congressmen uh, from New York will go to Washington next year. And that was a very significant factor in the likelihood that the Republicans are winning a, a narrow control of the House of Representatives, the, the election of, of 11 Republican congressmen from New York State. So... I think those were the biggest factors. Um, uh, at, at we've, we've seen uh, post-election surveys, independent-minded uh, voters who could swing either to the Democrats or the Republicans, uh, independent-minded voters, uh, a big negative factor for them was whether or not Donald Trump was supporting a candidate or not. And uh, those people who, who uh, had a choice, who are, were expressing a concern over uh, Trump uh, support for a Republican candidate, uh, close to 60% of them voted for the Democratic candidate. And so when you're in a swing district, in a swing state, uh, you have uh, in this increasingly polarized environment uh, where many people are, are not splitting their tickets and voting a party line, there's maybe 10 to 15% of the voters who are susceptible to um, splitting their ticket and and voting in more independently of, of the party. And uh, those folks uh, are, are reacting very negatively to a Trump endorsement. So 
Uh, it's a factor, and I think Republicans need to um, uh, take that lesson. Democrats, um, I think the lesson they need to take is, uh, uh, and they're going to have a problem in 2024 when I think 26 Democratic incumbents uh, are seeking uh, re-election or, or Democratic-held seats uh, are seeking uh, election. Um, that's going to be a steep hill for them to climb, and I think the public is, is very much ang- interested in finding candidates who are willing to solve problems and not simply go into their partisan corner, uh, but actually solve problems that the country is facing. So I think, I think there are lessons uh, for both parties to be taken from uh, Tuesday's result, which is going to leave us basically with a very narrow Republican majority replacing that very narrow Democratic majority in the House, and either a 50-50 Senate or a 51-49 Senate uh, on either side. So it's going to be very close. The question is how much can get done in the next two years with that, that uh, close division in Congress. When you really break it down, as you just did very well for us, Congressman, it, it's fascinating to understand how factors such as candidate selection, certain endorsements can be real difference makers when you consider the outcomes we saw a couple of days ago, and we still have some races outstanding. Running with where you left off, talking about the legislative agenda and how both sides of the aisle can collaborate to get policy passed through. It, it does seem at this point we're leaning towards a split Congress with the Republicans taking over the House of Representatives. What would you say are the implications of the results, the results we know as of today, to the policy environment on a near-term basis, maybe over the next couple of months, but really more so over the next couple of years leading to Decision 2024? I think it's going to depend on, on whether President Biden wants to govern from the center, as he said he would try to do when he ran in 2020, or does he continue to basically focus on a, an effort to govern from the left and uh, not make it possible for reasonable compromise with uh, Republicans? Now, in fairness, let me say that there, there were two particular piece of legislation that did pass in, in, in this past year, the infrastructure bill and the so-called CHIPS Act, which had substantial bipartisan support. And I think the president, I hope he and his advisors, uh, if, if he's going to have to work with a Republican House of Representatives, and maybe he has a Republican Senate, maybe he has a Senate that is slightly Democratic, but it's going to require compromise and conciliation uh, between the parties. I, I point to the first thing out of the box that the Biden administration did legislatively. They passed the $1.9 billion COVID relief package. And you may recall that there wasn't a single Republican in the House or the Senate that supported that, feeling that the, the package was too expensive, that it was unnecessary in many respects, etc. There was a group of 10 Republican senators that offered to negotiate a $600 billion program. And, and, and just parenthetically here, the way Washington passes hundreds of billions of dollars and indeed trillions of dollars um, now is really quite astonishing. But uh, the Republican senators, instead of that $1.9 trillion COVID package, they tried to interest Biden in a $600 billion COVID package, which they felt 
was defensible and affordable at that point, etc. They were shunned by the administration. And so I think that it's going to be really necessary for the president to um, uh, rebuild a relationship and a sense of trust um, with uh, Republicans in both houses if he wants to get anything done. And it's going to require Republicans to be willing to uh, compromise as well, but also be willing to set aside the political uh, question. And as, you, as we get closer to the 2024 election, unfortunately, it's going to be more difficult to get things done. So it's really going to be important for both sides if they want to pass some meaningful legislation. And we can discuss what that might be. But meaningful legislation, uh, they have to act really in the first six months, first seven months of uh, 2023, if they're intending to do that, the very first thing that they're going to have to consider is is funding the government and the debt ceiling. And those will be areas where they're going to have to compromise in order to uh, avoid a government shutdown and to and to um, you know fund the government properly. There's been a lot of questions around what might the makeup of congressional leadership look like given the results, including what the future of current House Speaker Nancy Pelosi looks like in the months to come. Any thoughts around congressional leadership, who might fill certain committee chair seats, the next Speaker of the House, and how collaborative do you believe will Congress and the White House be if we do indeed see a split Congress take shape? Well, I think it's... it's uh it's almost a certainty that Speaker Pelosi, uh, especially in, in light of the the, uh, the terrible attack on her husband uh, recently at their home in San Francisco, but I, it's been long expected that Speaker Pelosi was would step down after this election, and I I fully expect her to retire and and resign from Congress at some point uh, in the next uh, couple months um, because I think she's. You know, she has a, a she's 82 years old. Um, the two other leaders uh, who work with her, Jim Clyburn from South Carolina and Steny Hoyer, are both uh, uh, in their early 80s. And I think there's a yearning on the part of uh, the younger Democrats uh, to see a change in leadership. And I think Mrs. Pelosi is ready to uh, to to leave office uh, at some point in the near future. So I, I expect you'll see change on the Democratic side. It's, I think it's likely that Hakeem De- Jeffries, who is a congressman from Brooklyn, um, uh, will uh, be one of the strong contenders, if not the strongest contender. There's also talk of uh, Congressman Schiff from California being a contender for uh, the what I think will be the minority leader's position uh, on the Democratic side. On the Republican side, uh, Kevin McCarthy will become the next speaker. I think that's almost certain. Uh, he will definitely have some problems with some of the people on the right flank, but he's he's made uh, alliances uh, with uh, some of the colleagues that might have in the past, like Jim Jordan, have been expected to cause problems for him, as they did for Speaker Ryan and Speaker Boehner before him. So uh, I would expect that Kevin McCarthy from California will be the next House Speaker, Steve Scalise from uh, the uh, state of Louisiana will become majority leader. And then the, there'll be a, a, a contest among Republicans uh, for the posi- third-ranking position of whip. And um, my former colleague from New York and neighbor in New York, uh, Elise Stefanik, will be 
uh, the the conference chair. She'll continue in that role, I expect. So that's what I think. Uh, financial services in the House will be chaired by Patrick McHenry from North Carolina, who's a known quantity uh, to many people, and um, he's a, he'll be a very strong committee chairman. And I expect that there'll be uh, a lot of activity. Uh, and a different type of leadership uh, because uh, Maxine Waters would no longer be the chair of that committee. So I, I do expect that there'll be um, a lot of this is going to depend on on what the exact number is. But as it stands right now, we're looking at a House that will have between 222 and 226 uh, Republicans and about 210 or 213 uh, Democrats um, in the House. So it's be very closely contested and. To me, this means that the smart politics would also be, say, let's have good governance. Uh, the smart politics would be to say to the show to the public that they can get some things done. And again, the most important thing that the government needs, the Congress needs to do, is pass appropriation bills and uh, to move the funding of the government forward. Um, and I think we're also we also have some significant foreign policy issues, uh, funding for defense and. Uh, we have severe personnel and, and munitions uh, shortages in the military, and I think it really uh, getting, a, getting a handle on spending so that we can help control inflation uh, I think is going to be extraordinarily important, and, and we'll watch closely what the Federal Reserve is doing in this regard because, as we know, uh, they have more levers to deal with the inflation issue uh, than the Congress uh, from a monetary perspective. The Congress needs to get control of, of uh, spending, though. It's very, very important in my view, um, and, and also address the urgent uh, international military and defense issues that we face. Even though we're not quite through this current election cycle, as mentioned, with a few races still outstanding, it's never quite too early to start thinking about the next election cycle in 2024. And with that comes another race for the White House. And we did hear from President Biden on Wednesday evening during a press conference, having mentioned that he will be taking some time during the holidays to talk with his family about what the future might have in store for him. But what are your thoughts on potential? potential candidates on the GOP side for the presidency in 2024, and in terms of timing as to when we might begin to hear names, will that have to do, or will that be impacted by when President Biden perhaps announces his plans early next year? Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure, Dan. I, I, I think that, you know, we've heard that uh, former President Trump intends to make an announcement uh, as early as next week of his intention to seek election again to the presidency. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I think that'd be a very bad idea, especially before the December 6th uh, uh, runoff in, in Georgia. I think that would be the worst thing that uh, he could do if he wants to see Republicans prevail in that uh, Georgia uh, runoff election for the Senate. Um, but obviously, you've got Donald Trump uh, in in this mix. He's the he's the major player on the Republican side. But Governor DeSantis in Florida, coming off an enormous victory, almost 60 percent of the vote, winning uh, virtually all the counties, including some very Democratic counties like uh, Palm Beach County and Miami-Dade County in Florida. I think Ron DeSantis uh, poses an existential threat to. Um, a Trump candidacy. 
just from the standpoint of having a political base, having a financial base. He raised over $200 million in his reelect for governor, and I'm told he has about $110 million on spent. So that would be a, a formidable kitty to uh, begin a uh, presidential campaign at some point during 23. Um, and then there are others on the Republican side, the former Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. People talk about former governor of South Carolina, Nikki Haley, uh, the current senator from South Carolina, Tim Scott. Um, but when you really cut uh, Governor Yunkin of Virginia, who was just elected last year, um, but when you really cut through it, I see only Trump and DeSantis as, as at this stage as, as having a viable claim on the nomination. Democratic side, obviously, everyone will key on what does President Biden do. I do believe that if if the president says he's running again and he's already intimated that he intends to, um, uh, that there could, I would expect there'll be a couple of viable uh, candidates who see their opportunity and believe that the time is for the port turning a, turning the torch over to uh, a, the next generation. Uh, the president will be uh, will celebrate his 80th birthday shortly after. Uh, I think it's later this month. Actually, he turns 80, and that that's a that's a very difficult task to because when he'd be running, he'd be on the verge of being 82, and I think that's uh, something that a lot of Americans would say. Mm, maybe it's time for you to retire, sir. Uh, very very politely. So I, I think that. Um, my own view is that a, a race uh, between Biden and Trump for the presidency in 2024 would be just terrible for the country. I would, I would hope that that uh, both parties would turn the page in that regard. But uh, uh, this is just one pundit uh, speculating from the sidelines, and I think uh, uh, the voters are going to have and the and the parties are going to have a, uh, a lot of thinking to do in terms of uh, what that choice will be for the uh, presidency. Uh, in 24. Well, the political landscape here in the U.S. continues to be very fascinating. The next couple of years will give us all a lot to talk about. So it would be great at some point, Congressman Faso, to have you back with us to continue with our conversation, though. I do want to thank you again for your time, your insight today. You've been very generous with your time, have enjoyed hearing your takeaways, reflections on the results of the U.S. midterms for 2022 and what the policy landscape near term and over the next couple of years might look like. Though, thank you again, Congressman Faso, for your time and your insights today. Greatly appreciate it. Dan, thank you, and, and great to be with you. And again, uh, thank you to UBS and uh, and our friends at Van Eck uh, for making it possible. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Congressman. And a special thanks as well to our partners from Van Eck, Matt Murphy from Van Eck, for arranging today's conversation with Congressman John Faso. UBS Financial Services, Inc., or its affiliates and its employees are not affiliated with any third-party speakers mentioned. As a firm providing wealth management services to clients, UBS Financial Services, Inc. offers investment advisory services in its capacity as an SEC-registered investment advisor and brokerage services in its capacity as an SEC-registered broker-dealer. Investment advisory services and brokerage services are separate and distinct, differ in material ways, and are governed by different laws and separate arrangements. It is important that you understand the ways in which we conduct business and that you carefully read the agreement 
guidance and disclosures that we provide to you about the products or services we offer. For more information, please review Client Relationship Summary provided at UBS.com forward slash Relationship Summary or ask your UBS Financial Advisor for a copy.